Well, good evening. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Numbers chapter 12. We continue through this series in this book of Numbers, reminding us that God has a people, and God's people are numbered, and He is committed to them to the very end. We, in this book, are now with the nation of Israel as they journey through the, uh, through the wilderness, headed to the promised land. And so we come to Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to read it, pray for us, and we will jump in. This is God's word for us tonight. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came, came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. In a vision I speak with him. In a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, She was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she... Should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp of camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hezeroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is God's word. Let's pray for our pre- the preaching of it. Father, we, we ask that you would attend to your word tonight, open our hearts, calm our hearts, that we would understand it. Lord, thank you for the goodness of it. Bless our lives as we hear from it. In Christ's name, amen. This passage tonight is about one thing, and you'll hear me repeating it over and over again, and that one thing is this. Sin has consequences. That's really the point of Numbers chapter 12. Sin has consequences. May 1995, I returned home from school awaiting my final report card, knowing that I had not done well that semester. I'd struggle with a a certain class. I got home and got my, my report card and ripped it open as fast as I could. And I found the line that said accounting two, and I put my finger on it and went across, traced it to the grade, and there I saw my grade. 
D minus. And I had two feelings almost immediately. Yes, I'm going to pass. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It was kind of a touch and go there for a second in accounting too, but I thank the Lord for allowing me to pass that class. But I also felt something that was a little disturbing. I felt mad. Why did it have to come to this? Why was I super angry at this grade? I was not happy with my teacher. I was not happy with the administration. I was not happy with anybody that had anything to do with accounting too my junior year. Like I said, sin has real consequences. What you don't know is that the second semester of my junior year of high school, I was kicked out of my class, accounting two class. Yes, you can imagine me being in high school, such an angle, such an angel, easy to deal with. That was not the case. That was a joke. I know it's hard for you to believe that, that I was a good, studious, respectful student, but that was anything but the case. My teacher had kicked me out of accounting too, and she was justified in what she did. You see, my junior year, my sixth and seventh period, back-to-back, had the same teacher. I took, counting, I took typing in period six, and I took accounting too in period seven. And to say I was disruptive in class would have been an understatement. I was disrespectful, distracting, disobedient. I was a terrible student. And my relationship with this teacher reached its zenith when I came in one day, seeing her broom next to her desk, and I said, you know what? You can't park there. <laughs> to that she said, to that she said, you're out of here. For the whole semester, I had to teach accounting too to myself in the vice principal's office. Sin has consequences. Well, we all know that, right? We all realize that our sin has consequences in everyday life. But there's something about that reality we don't like. We don't like that when we sin, there are everyday consequences, and we run from them, and we blame God, and we get frustrated. We're lured by our own flesh, the world, and the evil one into this idea of cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus. If you take a second to analyze your own life, I'm sure you as me could struggle with that. That yes, we want to go through life and we know that God forgives us. We know the the penalty for our sin has been dealt with Jesus, but we don't want to experience the consequences of our sin and we get upset. Sin has consequences. Everyday, real life consequences. And that's what this passage is all about. And those are my two points. What are the sin? What's the sin here? And what are the consequences? So let's look at this passage together. The sin here is multi-layered. It starts in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. What's happening here? Well, most likely Zipporah, Moses' first wife, has died. And he's gotten remarried. And the woman he has chosen to remarry is a Cushite woman. Now the land of Cush is just south of Egypt. In the land that we would call Ethiopia today. 
So Moses' second wife is an African woman with dark skin. Now remember, Moses is not white, and Moses is not Caucasian. Moses is from Arabia, darker skin. So he too would have been darker skin, but not as dark as his Ethiopian wife. Cushites were known for their dark skin. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23 says this, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or leopard his spots? By using Ethiopians and leopards together, Jeremiah is making the point that both are uniquely known by their appearance and their skin. Ethiopians or Cushites were known by the deep and dark color of their skin. And the fact that Moses got remarried to a Cushite woman really bothered Miriam. It really frustrated Aaron. What I think is happening here in Miriam's heart, specifically, and Aaron as he associates with her, is they're struggling with racial prejudice. The sense that she is less than because of the color of her skin. And Miriam thinks her Israelite identity is far superior to this Cushite woman. The underlining sin to this whole passage is this issue of racial, ethnic prejudice, racial superiority, ethnic superiority. Now, why do I think that? Well, five reasons, real quick. The Cushite woman that's referred to there doesn't have a name. She has no name. She's just referred to as a Cushite who's married to Moses. And it's repeated twice. And we know when the Bible repeats something twice, it's emphasizing it. The emphasis in chapter 12, verse 1, is a Cushite who were known for their dark skin. Secondly, some might say, well, well, this isn't entirely true, Parker. Moses is marrying a Gentile, a non-Israelite. That's what's really upsetting Aaron and Miriam. Well, let's be reminded that Zipporah, Moses' first wife, was a Midianite, a non-Israelite. And there's nothing to suggest in Miriam or Aaron that they had any issues with Zipporah. Thirdly, this concept of of not marrying a Gentile or or non-Israelite people, which we find in Exodus chapter 34, is specific to the people of the land of Canaan. God didn't say, don't marry Gentiles. He said, don't marry the Gentiles in the land of Canaan. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Don't marry and intermarry with those people. Fourthly, as the passage goes on, we're reminded of how special Moses' relationship with God was. And if God had an objection to Moses marrying this Cushite woman, don't you think God would have said something to Moses? Throughout the history of Moses' life with God, God confronted Moses many, many times. And if this was something that was violating God's law, violating God's word, don't you think God who tells us in this passage that he talks to Moses face-to-face, would have said something to Moses. But he doesn't. And as the passage goes on, in a little bit we'll discuss this. Miriam's sin, the consequences for Miriam's sin, it's not infertility, it's not death, it's not widowhood, it's leprosy. It's a skin disease. Not only is it leprosy, it's isolation. She is treated as an outsider because of her skin. You see, the rock bed sin in this passage with Miriam and Aaron is this issue of racial prejudice. 
that's infected their hearts and their minds. And they view this Cushite woman as less than. That's not acceptable. This is ethnic superiority. Now the only point that I want to make of application here, knowing that this issue is a big issue in our culture, it's a big issue in our church, there's a lot of water under the bridge when we think about racism, when we think about racial injustice, racial prejudice in our lives. We know it to be real in the history of our city, real in the history of our church, real in the history of our own lives. And the only point that I want to draw out of application here, dealing with this sin, is can we not be people that shy away from it? Can we not be people that don't address it in our lives? This is a reality in all of our hearts. Nobody in here has mastered every sin. And to say that you've mastered the sin of racism or mastered the sin of ethnic prejudice, you're just lying to yourself. I'm lying to myself. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, expressed it this way. Expressed it this way. Every seed of every sin is known to man. Known to man is in my heart. I know that this is a caustic issue in a lot of our lives, in the culture we live in, in this church that we inhabit. But may we be people that are honest about sin in our lives. I'm not calling anybody in this room racist. We're not identified by our sin. But to say that you don't struggle with this, to say this is not an issue in your life, denies the very theology of the Bible. That you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And every seed of every sin is in every heart. The sin that Miriam and Aaron are dealing with is this racial prejudice that she thinks and he thinks that they're better, that she's not welcomed into this community. And this sin, this, this sin of racial prejudice produces different things. It produces gossip and slander. We see that in Luke, and we see that in uh, verse 1 as well. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. They're speaking against their brother who is the leader of God's people. They're gossiping about him. They're slandering him. Now, are they doing it to each other, or are they doing it kind of community-wide? I don't know. The Bible's not necessarily clear here. I tend to think that it's, it's a gossip or it's a slander that's outside of just their relationship. That it's not just contained to Aaron and Miriam whispering about this Cushite woman. Why? Because I think... Well, why? Because we see Miriam's sin be public. She's publicly disciplined. The consequences for her sin are public, as the nation of Israel has to wait on her. Not only that, God comes down in a cloud. He calls them into a meeting. And every time God shows up in a cloud, the nation of Israel is called to attention and worship. And so when God calls them out to discipline them, to confront them, Miriam and Aaron, it's a public display. I tend to think that this issue of racial prejudice, of ethnic superiority, has spilled over into many conversations, not just between Miriam and Aaron. 
You don't have to travel far on social media platforms to see this, especially in, political, in the political realm, college football realm. One side thinks that they're better. They're more righteous, they're more superior. And they look at the other side and they just criticize. They slander. They gossip. And they do it mercilessly. This sense of superiority breeds slander and gossip in a critical heart. And we see that as Miriam and Aaron try to undercut Moses and his ministry. But it goes on. It goes on to the sense of self-importance. It builds to the self-importance and pride. Look at verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? You hear what they're saying. Hey, 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 wait a minute. We've got something important to say. God just doesn't speak through Moses. I'm a prophetess. I'm the high priest. I can speak too. You hear that in their hearts as they're saying this. Has God only spoken through Moses? We deserve some attention as well. I've got something to say, and you need to listen. The sin in this passage is multi-layered, starting with superiority, moves into a critical spirit, slander, and ultimately blossoms in this inflated self-importance that's destructive, and all it does is hurt and dismantle relationships. And then verse 2 Maybe the scariest thing about this passage. And God heard it. This racial superiority, criticism, inflated self-importance, God heard it all. Nothing Miriam or Aaron thought, said, or did was hidden from God. It could not escape God's ears or his eyes. He is omnipresent and omniscient. He is everywhere and knows everything. Nothing you say Nothing Miriam said or Aaron said escaped the ears of God. The world, the flesh, and the devil want us to believe that we can hide. And we succumb to this temptation as if we can go to the corners of our lives and gossip about people, slander people, think different about people based on their race or the color of their skin. And we gossip quietly to friends. And no one will know that. Or we can think privately about other races, other ethnicities, and not get exposed. But God heard it. God reads your texts. God sees your Instagram history. God hears what you say to your spouse when you're all alone. God knows who's the one who signs his emails anonymous. God sees your lack of integrity at work to get ahead. God sees the whispers of your heart about another man's wife. God knows how much you embellish that story. God knows how you feel about other races, other ethnicities. There's nothing hidden from God. Everybody is laid bare before him. He hears and sees it all. What do we do with this? What do we do with this sin we see in Miriam and Aaron? Well, maybe we do what happened to David. We ask God to reveal it to us. We pray for a Nathan. We pray for people in our lives to talk to us about what they see, maybe hidden sins that we're not aware of, to confront us, to bring us to repentance, 
to plead God's mercy for our sin because it does have consequences in real life. Maybe by God's grace and through His mercy, we can have a Nathan in our lives that speaks the truth to us, truth to us in love. And we can say, like David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. May we pray and have friendships in our lives that people can hold up the word of God to us and the secret parts of our lives about any number of these things. Racial injustice, racial prejudice, slander, gossip, an inflated self-importance. And yet this goes on. This sin in Miriam, Miriam in Aaron's life has consequences. David was forgiven of his iniquity, but there still were everyday consequences as he lost his son. And so there are everyday consequences to sin, and we see them in this passage. The first thing I want you to see, what's the first consequence to the sin of Miriam and Aaron, is they're confronted by God. Verses 4 through 5, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three. To the tent of meeting, and the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. The three of them, the royal family of Israel, is caught in this sin, and God hears it and he calls them to a medium meeting, the proverbial principal's office. As God says, This is so important that I'm coming down to meet with you. I'm coming down in this pillar of cloud to confront you of your sin. We see this phenomenon of the the cloud of God revealing his presence or hiding his presence in the wilderness. It was there to lead and to guide God's people through the wilderness. And it comes down here not in guidance but in discipline. And what does he say? He says, hear my words. Miriam and Aaron, you think your words are powerful? Just wait. Just wait till you hear my words. This confrontation that God Almighty has with Miriam, Moses, and Aaron is a confrontation of relationship. And this confrontation is based on the relationship that God has with Moses. God explains to Miriam and to Aaron That there are prophets that he reveals himself to through visions and dreams. But this relationship he has with Moses is special. He speaks to Moses not in visions, not in dreams, not in riddles, but he speaks to Moses face to face or mouth to mouth, as he says. Moses and God have a special relationship. We're told in Exodus chapter 33 that Moses was God's friend. They have an intimate relationship. So much so that God tells us in this passage, verse 8, with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. How is that possible? 
No one can be in the presence of God and not die. But Moses here, for some reason, is in the presence of God and beholds his form, whatever that is. I don't know what that is, but I know it represents intimacy. It represents kindness. It represents a friendship that God had with Moses that was unique as the leader of God's people. And then he says to them, verse 8, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Why did you think it was okay, Miriam and Aaron, to slander, to gossip about my friend? Do you really think that you're that important that you can gossip and criticize and undercut my man? Are you that self-absorbed to think that the season is open to undermine and to devalue God's leader. God confronts them about what they were doing. I've been around 11 years here at IPC, and just recently we've been through some hard times together. And I know for a fact, I've been here 11 years, and I know that there are things about my ministry, legitimate things that you could question, things that you could gently critique, Things that you could disagree with, and you would be right. You would be right, because I'm not a perfect person, nor am I a perfect minister. But before you send emails, before you have those conversations about me, about any leader in this church, would you be reminded of John chapter 15, 15, that Jesus says, that you are no, more, no longer my servants, but you're my friends. You're my friend. And before you slander or gossip or undermine any leader in this church, please be reminded that you're not undermining, gossiping about, gossiping about, about excuse me, just some random PCA minister You're gossiping and slandering the very friend of God who he loves. And we're doing that to each other. We do that in all of our midst. It's not just the leadership versus the church. It's with each other. We gossip, we slander, we undercut, we steal each other's dignity by, by saying things about each other. We're saying it about God's friends. Moving on, the consequences God confronts Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, but also there's discipline. Look at verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Now, this is not just a little spot of eczema or some kind of acne. No, this is a skin disease that is covering her whole body. With her skin dying and peeling off, it looks like snow all over her. Miriam was thinking that her skin is more acceptable to God. God in his judgment or discipline is showing her it is not. Verse 14, But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face... 
Should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. God is referencing a young woman that brings shame upon the family based on some actions. And her father spits in her face as, a, as a, an act of discipline. And she's isolated the family. And God is saying, let her be shut outside the camp seven days after she, has been made, after she may be brought in. Moses pleads with God to relent. And he should because Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 101 verse 5 tells us that God will destroy the slanderer. And God relents, but not after she experiences the consequences of her sin, isolation. And that's what sin does. That's what sin does to Miriam. That's what sin does to us. It isolates us. The most secret sins, the quiet sins that you give yourself to, that I give myself to, they all breed isolation from ourselves from our neighbor, and for God. The irony about this is that she was looking down on Moses' Cushite wife because of her skin, believing that she is inferior and not welcome into the communion with God's people. And now she's the one who is isolated and barred from God's people because of her skin. You see the irony here. Though her skin is leprous, worse off, her heart is leprous. And God confronts her, and God disciplines her. Now, understand this, con- this concept of discipline is hard for us. It's hard to realize that sin has everyday consequences, and God disciplines us. He's not out to judge us. He's not out to punish us. But as we give ourselves to sin, as we walk down the path of unrepentant sin, God will move in to our lives, and there will be consequences. There will be discipline. He promises us that because he's our Father. He loves us, and he gently and graciously disciplines us. Our confession, chapter 17, paragraph 3, says this, Nevertheless, they may, though the temptations of sin in the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. God will discipline us, will shape us, will confront us in our sin. And what does that look like? It looks like the removal of grace and comfort. Do you feel like you're... you're, You're walking through life and you don't hear God's voice. You're stumbling. You're isolated from God's word. You're isolated from people. You feel anxious and overwhelmed by life. Could it be that you are engaging in unrepentant sin and God in his graciousness is disciplining you? Our hearts are hardened to God and others. We find ourselves apathetic to loving our neighbor. We become overly selfish toward others like Miriam did. Our consciences are wounded with guilt and shame and we walk around hiding from everything and trying to take in anything in this life to make that pain go away and we hurt others. 
we sin against others. What do we do with this? What do we do with this passage? Well, we seek repentance. We ask God to reveal our sin and we turn away from it. We turn back to Him, knowing of His grace and His goodness. A few years back, I got to meet or be reunited with that teacher in my sixth and seventh period who kicked me out of class, justifiably. I was at some reunion at my school, and I walked up and introduced myself uh, and said it was good to see her. And she was surprised. I had a few less hairs than I did in high school. And then she said this. She said, what are you doing these days, Parker? (laughs) And I said, well, I'm a minister of the gospel. And she said, you've got to be kidding me. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. This is a hard passage. It's a hard passage as we think about our lives, we think about our sin and the real everyday consequences that we have. We pray for your mercy upon our lives. I pray for a heart of repentance for all of us, that we would see our sin, that we would name it for what it is, and we would turn away from it and run back to you, Lord Jesus. Would you work that in our hearts by your Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Our hymn of preparation is Jesus, I Come.